0: Last fall of 2022, Eli Manning tried out for the Penn State University football team. This is a picture of Eli. He said he wanted to see if the coaches there would be interested in him as a player, and so he went through the process of getting his face changed. You've probably seen the video, Uh, and he became Chad Powers, And he walked on to the field for a tryout last fall. And uh, when he walked on the field, one of the coaches, they didn't know who this was. uh, One of the coaches said, this guy looks like he's stuck in the 80s, poor guy. They asked him uh, where he played, and he said he was homeschooled, and that his mother was his coach. He said, "She's she's not much of a much of a teacher but she was a really good coach and when he ran the 40 he was a full second behind everybody else and the coaches were rolling their eyes and they were making comments to the players until they started the drills and when they started the drills the coaches recognized his footwork He seemed to know where he was in the pocket at any time. He could move laterally. And then he started dropping dimes on receivers that were 65 yards out. I mean, it was right there. And then he started telling receivers how to run their routes. And then in his words, he started using lingo that no walk-on would ever know, but the coaches would know it. And if you watch the video, not now, but later on, it's a charming video. You keep one eye on Eli Manning or Chad Powers, and then you keep the other eye on the coaches and the players who don't know who he is. And there's this moment when they're watching Chad Powers, homeschooled, coached by a mother, move in the pocket. There's a moment where they stop and they start to think, Something is up. There's a word for that in Greek. It's called epiphany. When the coaches see the footwork and, and when they hear the lingo and when they see them throw these 60-yard passes, they start to have an epiphany. It means the lights slowly start to come on. It comes from a Greek word, a couple versions in the Old Testament. One, epiphano, the other, epiphania, comes from the root word, phanerao, and it simply means to reveal, to make plain, to appear. And so... It describes not only the moment where Chad Powers becomes Eli Manning again, where he takes off the wig and takes off the mustache. It also describes the moment where the coaches and the players slowly start to awaken. To They go from, wait a minute, to... What? To no way. To I can't believe it. That whole process, sometimes compressed in a moment and sometimes drawn out for months, is known as an epiphany. Are you there? Well, in the Gospels, there are lots of these. So if you read the Gospels well, you got one eye on Jesus because he's the star, but the other eye on the people that are meeting him for the first time. So, for instance, when Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding feast, it's the MC of the wedding who's looking at the wine and he's sinking. How did you save the best stuff to last? And he's looking at Jesus and he's going, what? Something is up. He's starting to have an epiphany. When the disciples are in the boat in the middle of the storm and Jesus finally wakes up and steps to the stern and says, cut it out. And the winds Calm down and the waves grow calm and the disciples look at one another and say, What kind of man is this? They're having an epiphany. You there? When the disciples come to Jesus in John chapter one, he says, What do you want? And they say, Where do you live? It's a horrible translation. Literally in the Greek, they say, Where are you from? He says, Come and see. They follow him to the place where he lives, and by supper time, Andrew runs and gets Simon and says, You got to meet this guy. I think we have found the Messiah. He's having an epiphany. Well, this is all the way through the Gospels. The woman at the well come see a man who told me everything I ever did. The paralyzed man by the pool when he hears the voice that says pick up the mat and walk. The boy with fish and loaves suddenly multiplied feeding thousands of people. The blind guy in John chapter 9 where a person he can't even see Wipes his eyes, and now he can see. None of them know who he is. Not even after he does this. But when he does these things, the lights slowly come on. They're like coaches looking at the footwork, listening to the lingo. The people on the Sermon on the Mount, he finishes the sermon. They turn to each other and say, never has anybody spoken like this man. He speaks as one having authority, not like the other teachers. They're having an epiphany. Are you there? Well, here's why I'm going. I think the church in general, in our church in particular, And you, to be more specific, need an epiphany more than you need anything else. And do you know why? Because as I move around and listen to people, I think the church today, maybe you in particular, are a little bored with your Jesus You're certainly confused. Certainly confused. And you're probably fatigued. You're bored because we have so domesticated Jesus that He can't surprise us anymore. He can't say anything that rattles us. We have a category for everything He says. We're confused because so many people keep dropping his name that we don't know who we're finally dealing with. To the progressives, he's a revolutionary. To the conservatives, he's, well, a conservative. And to the evangelicals, he's a personal savior. And to the Catholics, he's the mass. We don't know who he is And we keep hearing him dropped as an endorsement on special interests and causes. And if you're like me, you're like, man, can we just get the narrative straight? And we're fatigued because we're dealing with all of these things. And when somebody stands up and says, you need to have a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ, that just feels like one more thing to do. Are you there? So, as we launch into this, and we will in a minute, can I frame it in maybe uh, and give us kind of a guide? First, Epiphany is not primarily for um, meeting somebody you don't know. It's it's about coming to know somebody you've already met. So, Epiphany is not primarily for getting lost people saved. That's called evangelism. It's helping people that are already saved encounter the real living Jesus. It's us. Second, it's not a season in the Christian calendar. It's a moment in the Christian life. It's not something you plan and make happen. It's something you can't make happen, but it happens to you. You there? It's a renewal that you can't plan And you can't manipulate, but you can't avoid when Jesus presents himself to you in a fresh and meaningful way. So it's not primarily cognitive. And I say this in front of a college church for whom spirituality always means deeper thoughts. It is not a collection of deeper thoughts. It's an encounter with the living presence of Jesus Christ. And that can happen to anybody at any time, at any level of depth. It's what Kyle Eidelman calls an aha moment. A is awakening, H is honesty, and A is action. An epiphany happens when we are suddenly awakened to something we didn't see before, we didn't know before, we've never been here before. And in that moment, we internalize it and we put ourselves up against it in a moment of bare naked honesty And we find ourselves either convicted or inspired, but whatever deeply moved by the thing we have just encountered. And then because we've encountered it, we change our way of living. We change our practices. We do things we have never done before because we've seen things we've never saw before. Now, do you see why I think we need a lot of these inside of the church? But herein lies the paradox the people who need one most, the already saved. Already educated, formally credentialed, the ones who need it the most are the least likely to get one. You can celebrate epiphany and never have one. So this leads to the third aha moment for me. The secret to having one is posture. It isn't content. My job over the next few weeks is to say things to you in a way that, well, on a good day, might move you. But whether it actually does or not depends as much on a person's internal posture as it does on anything I say. Take, for instance, the time Jesus healed the paralytic. It's in Mark chapter 2. It's in Matthew chapter 9. It's in Luke chapter 5. Jesus heals the paralytic, and 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 the Pharisees are right there. And the way he heals them is he says to the man, your sins be forgiven. The guy wants to be healed, and Jesus says, well, your sins be forgiven. And when the Pharisees hear this, they say to themselves, what kind of man is this? Only God could forgive sins. Do you see it? They're on the verge of an epiphany. But then the next thing out of their mouth is this man's blaspheming. Mm. They've already topped a posture internally that means he couldn't possibly be God because all of the spaces in my brain for that are taken with other assumptions. Same thing is true when he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. They look at Jesus while he's teaching and they say, wait a second, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know Mary, his mother? Aren't these his brothers? Aren't these his sisters? Where did he get these things? You're thinking, they're there, they're there. They're ready to get it. And the next verse says, and they took offense at him. You see it? It was right there. And they let it go because of an internal posture. So it is crucial as we encounter the gospels in the next few weeks that the internal posture is one of humility and one of hunger and one of devotion. Humility Because no matter how much you know about him, you still don't know. And so you need to pursue ignorance, not knowledge. Your knowledge is killing you. It's your ignorance that will drive you. What don't I know that I wish I knew about him? By the way, the brightest people in the room are the ones who pursue ignorance. One looking to answer the questions nobody else is asking. And hunger, because you are willing to throw not just minutes, but hours into the pursuit of him what does he mean not what did he say but why did he say that in devotion because you are already practicing what little you know humility because you pursue ignorance Hunger because you pursue it relentlessly. And devotion because you practice already what you know. Are you there? You're quiet today. Are you all right? Well, let's get to the text. It'll be fast. So I thought, as a way to introduce us into this, I'd start at the end, which is where a lot of you will wish I'd started 15 minutes ago. It's, uh, it's in Luke 24 uh, as Jesus uh, joins a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Have you heard this story? Do you know the story? rats. I was hoping to surprise you. So Jesus uh, has come back from the dead. It's the afternoon of the first Easter. Two disciples, having been in Jerusalem, scared out of their minds. They don't know what happened to them. They are headed on their way home. From Jerusalem to Emmaus is about a seven-mile two and a half hour walk if you just sort of saunter along. And that's what these two disciples are doing. They're just sort of sauntering along a road that they are very familiar with. And they're having a conversation when suddenly a stranger comes up behind them. And the way the language in the original is that it happens Suddenly, like he appeared out of nowhere. One of them is just talking to his friend like this. When out of the corner of his eye, he sees the stranger standing right there. And the stranger says, what are you fellas talking about as you walk along the way? And the one looks at him and he looks at his friend and goes... You must be the only one who doesn't know the things that have happened in the last few days. (laughs) Stranger says, what things? And they go. One of them says, Jesus is Nazareth. He was a man powerful in word and in speech and then our religious leaders and the rulers, the government, they they took him over and they crucified him. We were hoping he was the next king. And then, in addition to all of this, the women, they came and they told us this morning that they'd been to the tomb and... The tomb was empty, but there was an angel who told them that Jesus had come back from the dead and we couldn't believe it. And so we ran like mad to get to the tomb. And when we got there, we saw that the tomb was empty, but him we did not see. And Jesus says, oh man. That's almost the literal translation. It, uh, really, it almost is. The way that that starts in the original language is this, this exclamation or this sigh. He didn't say, oh, you foolish. And No, no. He went, oh, man. You are so foolish, and you're so slow in your heart to believe all that the prophets have written didn't the Messiah have to suffer before he entered his glory didn't it have to be this way wasn't the glory always in the suffering and not after it tell me You know these things. Then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus began interpreting all of those texts in the light of himself. Are you there? That phrase, beginning with Moses, stopped me dead in my tracks. I ask myself, why is it that when you talk when Christians talk about Jesus, they always start with Christmas? But when Jesus talks about himself, he starts with Moses. Why is it whenever Christians put Jesus and Moses together, they always elevate Jesus and forget Moses? Is it just as possible that there are things about Jesus you cannot know unless Moses teaches you? So I started putting them side by side, asking myself, what does Moses have to say about Jesus? And what does Jesus interpret about Moses? Are you still there? I start to notice some strange comparisons. Both of them are born under very Well, unusual conditions. Both of them are born under tyrants who want them killed, whether Pharaoh or Herod. Both of them are born to parents who aren't really their parents. Both of them are taken out of the water. Moses from the Nile, Jesus from the Jordan. Both of them grow up to be a powerful teacher who performs miracles. Both of them feed the multitude. Both of them involve a sacrificial lamb who dies in both cases at twilight. Many times when Jesus alludes to his story, he does so in the framework Moses he refers to the law to the Sabbath to the tabernacle to the bread Moses was all of those things and Jesus simply stepped into the narrative he wrote and lived out his ministry as if to say if you've seen Moses you've seen me in fact That is what he said in John chapter 5 when he said to the Pharisees, if you believed what Moses wrote, then you would believe what I say. But as it is, you don't believe what Moses wrote, and so you can't believe what I say. To the Sadducees, he said, what is written in the book of Moses? And to the Pharisees, he said, what did Moses teach you? And to the disciples, he said, Moses gave you bread, but I am the bread of life. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there are two special appearances, one by Elijah and the other by Moses. And according to Luke, Moses and Jesus are discussing Jesus' exodus. You begin to wonder if Moses is the story, but Jesus is the star. Are you still there? So while Jesus was waxing eloquent on Moses, the disciples arrive in their house at Emmaus. And when they get there, they ask Jesus, "Want't you come in and spend the night with us?" He does, and when he's at the table, he takes the bread. And he breaks it, which incidentally started with Moses. And as he did it, their eyes are opened. Epiphany. Holy cow. That's in the original language. Wait, what? No way. I can't believe this. Their eyes are open and they recognize him and he vanishes from their sight. And they turn to one another and they say, wait for it, did not our hearts burn within us? Not when he broke the bread, but when he opened the scriptures to us as we walked along the way. Well, that has me thinking a lot about us because I wonder if many of us here this morning are like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You're tired, you're fatigued, some of you are a bit bored with your religion, you're overwhelmed, you're confused, and what you need more than anything is to have Jesus open your eyes. You need a fresh encounter with someone you've already met. Like the disciples, you know him, but you need to meet him again in an unsuspecting way. And when you do, you need your own eyes to be opened and you need your heart to burn. Because I think there's a lot of us this morning who are somewhere in between hearts that are tired and hearts on fire we are somewhere between fatigue and revival we are tired and we are confused but we need clarity and we need revival and this cannot happen by some man-made plan to wake everybody up it happens one person at a time when you encounter him at times you weren't ready for it Well, what do we do? Posture, posture is everything. If you are not up to this moment reading the Gospels or reading Exodus, if you'd like, start there. Don't ask yourself, what is Jesus doing? That's obvious. Ask yourself, why is he doing that? What kind of a mind thinks like this? Why are these his instincts, but they're not mine? And pay attention to the characters who come in and out of his life. What are they noticing about Jesus for the first time? What do you already know, but you don't yet believe? And what would it take for you to believe that? To move beyond understanding into comprehension. But above all, as we do this, let us do it with confidence. Confidence. For Jesus himself said, if you keep asking, you will receive. If you keep knocking, it will ultimately be opened. If you keep seeking, I promise you, you will find. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty For they are the ones who are filled. Blessed are the devout and the pure in heart. For they shall see God.